0: listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Today, I am really delighted to get to talk about level design with Daniel Uh oh Daniel I didn't ask is it camera
1: yeah camera yeah all right
0: got it yeah well you know Daniel before we dive in I I always kind of like to ask guests uh, just to kind of give us a little you know background like what's your story how did you get into games
1: oh wow the big one straight away (laughs) yeah yeah
0: um A bit like what you said earlier. Um,
1: For me, I always loved games. And I was always a a kind of creative guy. So I started working into um, advertising and graphic design and copy text writing 1998. And then during a multimedia course where I wanted just to learn how to do um, multimedia presentations, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, there are artists in games, people building 3D. So I discovered that I could be in games without having to program anything. So... um, I started pursuing that career. I went to Wales to study 3D computer animation in 2000, um, because it wasn't possible at that time in um, Germany. Um, So I went away and discovered not only computer animation and 3D tools and particle animation, but uh, my wife as well (laughs) in in Wales. Then after a few years studying this, I came back to Germany and then tried to apply my Newly learned 3D skills in computer companies around Hamburg. Uh, I'm from Hamburg originally. And so I I dived into games and um, had to learn the hard way that games is a very, very tough business. Not many companies need artists in-house or uh, uh, um, can afford them. Um, I went through a few companies where I was lucky enough to learn different tools, Studio Max and all this. Um, And I saw a few companies going bust and eventually uh in a, in a company in hamburg some guy said well you're a 3d guy but we actually need more level design work at the moment how about you do our put our levels together and that's when my trajectory towards level design around about 12 years ago started so my um I'm still passionate about um, 3D, but I'm very, very lucky to be more into level design now. And um, after several years in Hamburg, I went to Finland, which invigorated my career even further. Since then, I'm working in free-to-play, mainly with Next Games and other companies in Finland on the No Man's Land Walking Dead, which is the biggest project I worked on and the one I'm the proudest of. Oh yeah, here I am. Now I'm working remotely because my wife moved through Europe, and now we're in an island living where she is from. So I'm working remotely for the last three years. So if that was a bit scattered, I should have practiced that. Speech. <laughs> you get the idea.
0: That's, that's great. See, I've never been to Ireland, although you can't really tell anymore. My red hair is, is definitely starting to fade, but I definitely do have, you know, some Irish in me. So someday I'll, I'll get over and, and visit uh, visit you in Ireland. Yes, and... you do. Yeah,
1: yeah, always, always welcome. You, you definitely could pass for an Irish.
0: <laughs> Love it. Well, that's quite an interesting journey. So as the first level designer or like pure play level designer, I should say, I've, I've had a few people that have maybe like done stints, but then they go on to, you know, more game design or economy design or whatnot. But, you know, thinking about level design, what exactly does that mean? What is um, level design or how should, how should somebody that isn't a level designer think about it?
1: Well, I always say we get all the building blocks that the coders and the artists provide us with and arrange them into a coherent second to second experience for the player i mean of course, it depends if you have levels. <laughs> if you're only um, icons and things, then there's no level design. But in, in, a, in a sense, for 3D action games or first-person shooters or something, we put all the building blocks together and make sure that the player can open the doors. Then there's a logic behind everything interacting, interactable in the game world, as well as making sure that the big pieces that the artist create are nicely framed at any given point. Or So basically, yeah, we, we put the things together, I'd say.
0: An interesting way of thinking about it. So essentially the dev team gives you the restrictions of like what you can or can't do. The art team kind of gives you, here's how the different things work. And then working within those restrictions and with those things, you can kind of put together a level essentially. Yes.
1: Yes. There's often, sometimes it I wouldn't call it restrictions. <laughs> Maybe it's a more, if you're lucky, you have a scripting system or something that gives you A lot of freedom where you can rearrange it in any really how do you say surprising ways (laughs) and other times you have a very very limited tool set where within you can only put this box to be opened that's it or something you know it depends yes you get the limitations and the restrictions from the initial designs or the the coders that implement these designs and
0: mm-hmm. you know when you're putting together levels uh let's maybe use a familiar example let's say uh i don't know candy fresh saga or royal yeah. match but like think of like a match three game or something like that okay. yeah, um yeah. you know they they have tons of levels like like thousands of levels right um you know if i wanted to put together a level for a match three game you know. What would that process look like?
1: Okay, so that's interesting because this is slightly different. I mean, it's different to what I do normally. I come from traditional third-person action level design, where it's really about implementing the assets, then making sure the the logic behind the scripted and executable and um, Maybe I should step back a second and say, it depends as well for a company. I mean, in Ubisoft, the level designer is probably just the guy who blocks out the action. Then someone, an environment designer comes in, fills the beauty, and then another guy scripts (laughs) the whole thing. But so far, where I worked, it is the levels designer's job just to get it running. And I have this um, 3D environment in which I rearrange the blocks. Now, speaking of a match-free game, I I have an idea. I have seen there's a lot of... um, I read a few things about in Gamma Sutra, particularly about the tree It is more, uh, they have more a set of, um, how do you say that? Rules, you know, there you create, you have a black canvas as everywhere. And then they have a set of blockers, building blocks. Again, you have blockers, mm. you have um, exploding rockets. You have all these different icons that pop in. These are his building blocks. And then he decides in this given level, how many of these different tools will I give to the player it's a, if it's an open area or it's a short sh- small area these are the kind of decisions that will go into that but it's less of a he doesn't know at any given point how this level will play out I think there's a bit more freedom to the to the experience so it's um for me hard to really really tell you what's the first step to create a free game
0: I like to keep you on your toes you know yeah
1: <laughs> very, good, very good thank you so, um, as far as I understand, <laughs> I think you're just uh, rearranging the, the rule sets the, and, and tell the player, uh, tell the game, show to, to the player this and that um, building block at that after one or two rows. And it's basically they design out the first three steps or something. And then the game kind of unfolds differently, depending on where the player interacts. As we all know, Candy Crush or something, it, it's an evolving play field. Yeah. And for me, I, I'm in a lucky position. I can design out the encounters a bit more closely. I can make sure that people don't run in, and I have to make sure that they don't run into dead ends. And of course, they don't run into dead ends in Candy Crush, or at least it will only result in them running out of
0: turns. So when I'm designing a level, or you're designing a level, I should say, um, you know, are are you playing the level a lot, or is this more of a high level, I know how it should work and I can just kind of put it out there and then it goes on there. Like how much should a level designer be playing the level to make sure that it is actually interacting and behaving the way that you know you are wanting it to?
1: That's a, it's a very good point. And um, the, the short answer is every time, everything you put in there, you have to play. You have to play to actually see how it plays. Then if I start missions, it's often for me, the, the high level idea. And I have a piece of environment, I want to base this mission on, let's say, I don't know, the the statue or, or um, uh, body bags or something. And so I, I place them in a central position and make the action surrounding that, telling a story in the environment as much as in the gameplay, making sure. So it is a, it, it's a mixture, of course, you should have a high level idea and try to design your missions and the environment on that. Um, but that being said, you have to constantly play and see if this placement suddenly, oh, wait a minute, I didn't think that this would actually lead to that. There's always little surprises in, if they, it all comes together, you know, with the, the enemy spawns and um, the interactive objects and stuff.
0: Have you ever done any sort of level design that incorporates, um, I want to say like machine learning or like uh, losing the word, but like auto-generated uh, type landscape and stuff. So, you know, as an example, let's take like Diablo 2. So Diablo 2, you know, when I get to one of the levels, there's going to be a predefined something that exists there, like a waypoint, and there's going to be like a way to get to, you know, some of the other areas, you know, within there, but everything else is kind of randomly generated for the most part. Have you worked with any, any sort of constraints around something like that?
1: I don't think I say too much. Yeah, when I joined Next Games for particular, they needed a level designer. They needed someone to put things together in Unity because the the way the game worked was kind of all handcrafted. That's what we call it in-house. Over the years, from various business reasons and stuff, we we found that the the content treadmill is a very, very, um, how do you say, it's a, it's a danger in, in for anyone running a free-to-play time. You don't want to run into... People will burn through your content so quickly. And if you have to produce it hand uh, handcrafted all the time, this will definitely leave you in a bit of a tight spot. So that being said, over the years, we tried a few times to change the game into something a bit more procedurally generated, but it often then happens... The tech the game is based on, in this case, it is a bit... Well, we are in a, in a certain corner with this game and that's that's not a bad thing or a good thing it's just the way it is you know you have a tech run in your game so if you plan procedural from the beginning you are you're in a, in a better spot so and when you ask if i worked in this over the yes yes we managed to create certain um, missions and game modes in the game that run, kind of run semi-procedural so we are as a level designer we create the let's say to to really boil it down to we create the obstacles we create the enemy spawns, and then we create um, a logic behind it, like interactive objects or something. And this gets rearranged by the design documents, so we can rearrange these obstacles and enemies and interactive objects into new experiences. So someone say, so it looks different, feels different to the player, without us having to craft every single encounter every time. So yes, I work with this kind of systems, and um, it is actually quite fun to think building blocks you know to kind of what can fit with each other and then seeing the outcome of it it's quite fun to see the 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 crazy situations The (laughs) the um i don't want to call it ai that's a bit of a big too big a word but the, the computer rearranges this into and um yeah, that I worked. It's it's, uh, it's a different approach as to classical level design. Place it all, play it. You know exactly what's happening at any given moment in the mission. Kind of. Mm-hmm. While with this kind of procedural generated approach, it is a bit more of a jack in a box. <laughs> but, but still yeah. great, it's great fun to to think ahead and think
0: I about. would agree it, it's super fun I remember the first time I was playing around with uh, just doing some procedural generation in Unity I, and I, I bought like an asset pack and uh, yeah I think in like five or ten minutes I had a fairly decent looking world, like, a, I don't know, a Skyrim quality looking world that was yeah. procedurally generated and I could run around and hack and slash different things. You know, I, I didn't go through the full process when I was messing around at that point in time of, you know, generating like where the streams are and the grass and the trees and how things. you know, there's a lot that can go into it easily. But, you know, thinking about this idea, you said it's good to start with it in mind, you know, when you're making your new game, you know, do you have any recommendations around when is it worth it to invest in kind of starting with procedural generation versus when does that add too much time to, uh, I kind of believe in this mantra of like the faster that I can get a reasonable prototype out to players and actually gauge their interest the, the better that it tends to be versus, you know, if I add too many things like procedural generation or whatnot into that prototyping phase, I could end up sinking you know, several more months into something that ultimately just gets canceled. Um, and that was maybe a waste of dev resources that could have been spent on something that actually has more potential. So, you know, do you have any recommendations on like balancing what that looks like? You know, is it like a fast prototype to a soft launch? And then in the soft launch phase as we seem to be getting some good metrics, like let's take a step back here, plan for that content treadmill get some semi sort of procedural generation going or something like that
1: um it's a very good point um i to be honest i really ha- don't think i would have a general rule for this because um it it, it, it depends on the i mean I'm, I'm big on the emotion we evoke in the player i think if the player quickly sees oh this is just randomly generated you know what's this thing blocking my way here <laughs> and i've seen that uh, the other way uh, you know they, they lose in they, they kind of it can unless the, the second to second is so juicy they really don't care what, on what background I do want anything if you know what I mean like uh, in, 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 in um, for us in No Man's Land it was actually quite good that we had these handcrafted missions and they are really really popular with the players they are really great experiences that draw those players in and give them a story we couldn't have achieved that with a with a, with a computer generated hey just give me a box in the corner and the player goes there and then he sees enemies no we had this handcrafted situations where the player could um fuel which would fuel their fantasies and really really made us more successful i think if the if we would have just given them um the same kind of looking playgrounds and so i, I would say it, it um if you have a if you're planning on a game which which kind of contains a content treadmill mm-hmm. like of course you should definitely look into procedural but like for us in no man's land we had we have base missions for so 50 base story missions they're quite hard in the end and really hard to proceed through but there's other endless content that's kind of it so the game modes define the content in a way Mm. so we have now places for a certain content treadmill or where, where it's fine and it never broke our backs in a way and if you have a game where you, you you expect the player to pay I don't know one and a half million missions over his lifetime, then of course you definitely should not go into trying to handcraft all this and create a, a framework on which they can experience whatever you, you you need them to experience in the missions. So yeah, I kind of it kind of depends what you want the player to do in your second to second. I think or what emotions you want to invoke. And if it's only this kind of power fantasy of destroying, you know, like I, I'm kind of thinking of. Uh, upgradable heroes getting power more powerful weapons and stuff like that you definitely don't need handcrafted missions for any of that that's just a waste of resources you know just need something nice looking that it happens on
0: that makes a lot of sense and so it almost seems like you know in some spots in your game like having that handcrafted designed experience could be you know really amazing and then in other areas you could definitely do procedural generation like um,
1: yeah. Again, we don't, we didn't achieve the, the complete, <laughs> but yeah, we, the, the other ones are a bit, for, for, I would call them a bit more formulaic. I mean, from a design perspective, I have clear cut um, um, rules for these, you know, the point, like the, the visibilities of the players and stuff, they don't vary as much as a handcrafted mission. A handcrafted mission can really throw something completely new in, in, in order. The playing field changes around you. And while a formulaic mission gives you an objective, from top to bottom. Nothing changes during the mission. That's my my basic approach to this. So yes, there is a place in in, in that's I think one of the reasons why this game is, is still it's quite successful and quite successful. We have a different offerings for the players. If you have a want to have a low low engagement quick session you can go in a certain mission. If you really want to think it through have this kind of XCOM experience we have a mission for
0: you too. That's great. I really like that. So in mobile especially it's not as not the same when you're on PC where like, maybe you can just like push out an update and it'll just update things. But like in mobile, especially dealing with Apple, if something goes out that was missed in QA and is broken, it can have a really negative player experience. But if it's, you know, a client side push, you have to wait for, you know, Apple to then approve it and users to update it. And it can be, you know, days when players are stuck with like some, bug that could be actually breaking your game. So question for levels, you know, do you believe that level design and the way that you push those levels should be like a server side type of a push or, you know, are those things that should be built into the client and just tested thoroughly and pushed out as part of like a regular client update? That's,
1: um, I, I can, this is where, 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 where I learned many things over the years, but I still really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think again, it's another holy grail, and um, you would love that your game only runs on a on a data sheet that you can update. So if you see any exploits happening, or if any people exploit yeah, finding some lee- leeways around it, or you have a really big bug which hinders progression, yeah. you want to fix it on the fly. But then you run into all these troubles with what's with the assets. We can't stream the assets. We have something have to have something on this, on the on the client, or we have logic in our missions that if you store all this on, on some database and that's, it's, it's a technical beast as far as I can tell. <laughs> if you we'll talk to a coder there more closely, that is, um, it's a trade-off. I think a lot in development is a trade-off between quality, money, performance, um, player experience, whatever you want to call and So in, in my experience, um, it is something you would love to have, if you can achieve it that most of the game will be fixable from the site. but um i to me personally haven't seen a project that can completely circumvent any major bugs that would have to have a emergency fix going through apple and i'm not saying we ever did this but yeah i've seen a few (laughs) it's just that's just the, the nature of the beast i as far as i can tell (laughs)
0: I like it yeah I don't don't know uh you know some games like uh you know Genshin Impact every time I pick that up I have to download another like gigabyte of uh, (laughs) stuff that comes out but I don't realize to do many client updates so I don't know if they've maybe figured it out
1: that's that's um, yeah I think this is something I've seen more and more over the last month or a few months or something that you pick it up after a few days and then they want to give you something new I think Hello Nikki or whatever it's called this is another one where it happens to me all the time yeah, I mean, therefore, it looks beautiful, I guess. And, and Genshin Impact, I mean, in particular, it's kind of stretching the hardware, I think. Or the-
0: yeah, the- I, I actually did a, a deconstruction of uh, Genshin Impact, which is very fascinating if you want to read through it sometime. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, we did like a tag team of four people because it was a big game. <laughs> it was my first deconstruction. I never realized exactly how much uh, you have to play a game to truly do a deconstruction. So I logged yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of hours in there. But uh, we also got to do a lot of research on how they work and stuff. And what I found most fascinating was uh, they're all about like mastering tech over there. Um, And one of the technical things they had to master was like, okay, well, if we're, you know, pushing on a PC or a console, you know, having players download gigabytes of, of stuff isn't an issue, but like on a person's phone where you're very limited by gigabyte perspective, you cannot get around that. And so through some technical magic, I won't say that I can completely understand the translations that I was able to find in Decipher, but they basically were able to take like files that were like 50, 100 megabytes and turn them down into like kilobytes that were ultimately downloaded, you know, on the oh. phone, but still rendered, you know, in the same beautiful looking mantra. And they used like a combination of Unity and Unreal together. Very, very masterful. I was super impressed by that. But uh, yeah, definitely some some magical stuff going on there. Getting back to my, my main question, though, with levels and kind of this over-the-air design, um, I mean, is there... Some sort of balance that should be done in, or, or maybe another way to to think about things. Do you ever try to test levels before you fully roll them out? I talk to a lot of game designers, and they say, you know, whenever possible, if I'm making a new feature. I like to run that feature as an event first. So, like, we'll have a special event that's like the arena event over the weekend. And then I can see how players respond to it. You know, does it actually achieve what I'm trying to do? And then I can go back and look at that data, fix the actual, you know, feature. I mean, if yeah, I had really yeah. bad engagement, maybe i scrap it all together. But assuming the engagement was there, now I can see like how it was done. Maybe i try it a couple more times as an event, yeah. get some more data, refine, test a little bit more, and then fully roll it out to players with like much more confidence in it. You know, Do you do that sort of thing with levels at all? Or is it pretty yeah. much I just roll out the level and see how it goes and maybe change it later on?
1: Um, very good point. Um, yeah, so first, I have to love, yeah. Every content that we put out, needs to be thoroughly tested as good as we can. And of course, um, now over the years of the experience, I kinda can gorge certain um, limitations or um, difficulties or something beforehand. But that being said, nothing really, really beats a proper community test. I, it all happens in our game. It is that we have a kind of game mode where you play at a low level and then you can progress into a high level encounters where the enemy is very hard, where you have certain different enemy types that you have to be facing. This can only be tested to an extent you, because the people play differently. They have different character setups. They have different traits that affect these different weapons. This you can only kind of guesstimate. How this experience will be at this high level players and we often still see when the, the content finally rolls out that the end level players find a leeway or they find. A, I wouldn't call it exploit just a way to play the missions that we haven't anticipated, mm-hmm. so we never did A/B testing for missions or anything, I think. For us particularly, it is like you don't want to break anything, right? But I think a, a bit of a scattered experience is now and then, okay, if the players have an experience, we have this event content, which runs for a few days. So if we see in this few days that these missions are really, really impassable, then I will sit down and tweak them individually or, or kind of find the spots that I think... Uh, hinder the progression there so you can react to it it's not nothing written in stone that you really broke the game of course if you create new game modes and really expand on your tech and do something in life that you have never done before you absolutely should try to get this in a group test before you really roll out life because that as well is things that can happen and um, once you hit the the your critical mass of players um, your game will and that's what I, I definitely saw over the years. It all was running fine. Internal testing, test companies on it, all fine. Yeah, we are great. We go live. Boom! It, it explodes on because of some reason, you know. So there is a, there is definitely a, something you have to look at individually. And um, anything that expands on the current experience or tech or feature set, you should put in a test. to to as many people beforehand as you can.
0: So, you know, thinking of of tests like that, I I know, you know, Google supports this idea of beta users that they can get stuff kind of ahead of your regular, you know, scheduled updates. I've always personally been back and forth on that. You know, in one sense, it's nice that I can have you know, some actual players yeah. play the things before it's like fully released. And usually they're pretty engaged and giving good feedback and stuff. But on the other hand, I also really like going fast and just, you know, making mistakes and learning from them as quickly as possible because I think that allows us to progress. Do yeah. you have any thoughts on, you know, the loss of speed versus the additional, you know better feedback and ultimately hopefully better content that you're putting out? Um, for me, it is less a loss of speed
1: Um, in general, I think any feedback on your game, because basically we're putting out mission or we're pushing out games to people and they will have a certain experience with that. And whatever they can tell you about this experience is a kind of, oh, okay, fair enough. I haven't thought of that, basically. So whatever you then decide on um, changing or not changing people ask them sorry sorry for giving you this back i'm like no no keep giving me this because we're improving (laughs) the game step by step and it will get more rounded and better experience that being said i i'm very very sometimes um wary of this kind of focus tests where you get you have to take this in a way with a pinch of salt because i think people have this um, how do you call it? I, 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 I call it a bit critical feedback. You know, suddenly people will point out, why is that button green? Why? <laughs> well, you know, you know, if this rolls out to ten thousand of people, no one will blink an eye about a green button in the corner. So this kind of focus test, people getting put in front of a game, now give me feedback on this. It gives you this mindset. Oh, I have to find something to say, and they're not really objective. I think that it, it's way more valuable to kind of. Have a set of I don't know, make it yeah, like soft launch. This is why we do soft launches because people kind of discover it by themselves. Of course, it's UA a bit, but they have a their own mindset to approach your game. And the the data you get out of this is better than if you get thousand people, put them in a room with your game. Then you get way more naggy feedback. If you know what I mean. Yeah, but it's just yeah. my feeling. Maybe maybe people can know the better about the numbers. That being said, again, I would not. 3 out of 100 people tell me this button is ugly I will definitely look at this button more <laughs> closely but um I think it's all you have to you have to find a way and again as you said speed comes into play now when you start implementing this feedback I think it's fine to do a bit of a test and then if you say okay now we have to halt production and get it all fixed before we go into the next stage that is the wrong approach you know you have to I think I heard somewhere the other day, you have to get all the game in place and then push forward to getting it to play testing rather than sitting there and optimizing to the to the smallest degree this little feature you want to if there are some bugs and leave them in for the moment push the experience further get the loops in before you really really optimize the details and so that's that's where you can i think you you have a point when you say that's a more of a time issue because if you just kind of do test and then keep fixing fixing do test, keep fixing and you're still nowhere near to have your the, the vision of your game completed then you will you can do this loop forever and think you're doing right while just yeah. need things that
0: people popped into people's heads. Sort of. mm. A couple thoughts that I'd love to pick your brain on of, of ways I've seen people kind of work with players or, or do some sort of this testing. So one, which I think can add more complexity, but sometimes it's almost needed to be done. But uh, you know a lot of times games that get rather large, you shard the players into different uh, realms. Let's call them. And so what I've seen some folks do is they say, okay, well, players that are in Realm 1, we're going to push out our events and our new levels and, you know, X, Y, Z, they always get them first. So they're kind of our guinea pigs and they like being our guinea pigs. We get to kind of test things on them. It's still live, but we might tweak things and we might change it before we roll it out to our other, you know, 20 or 50 realms, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: fair enough. Is that something that you've done before? seems interesting, useful, or does that add too much complexity because now I'm managing content is different for this group of players than you know these other groups of players? No, I think that seems to be a technical
1: solution and a smart way of um, basically keeping a track of, of this se- se- the player segregation there. I haven't seen it in action and I I only just now heard about this I think sounds like a reasonable way i'm trying to think of something that I mean. If, then, for the end, if if you push it out to the other realms you kind of know exactly what you need to change to make it applicable to these yeah I guess that's a feasible way of doing it. Have to see the differences in the realms. Then.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen some different uh, different use cases come up. You know, sometimes you have different players on different versions of the game and stuff like that too. It can be very interesting. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The, the the second thing that I think we actually heard about this from. Javier Barnes, who was one of our, our first guests on here, um, and he was talking about his experiences uh, running Monster Legends at Social Point. And he said one of the things that helped him as a designer more than anything else was setting up these weekly. He kind of, you know, let his engaged players know, you know, every Friday at two p.m. I'm going to be on Discord for an hour. And like, oh. just come and talk to me. And he said a lot of the very best ideas that he had. And a lot of the worst ideas that he had that were prevented from going out uh, actually came from talking to these engaged players where, um, so monster legends, you kind of like release a new monster and you might change up the meta or something like that, uh, kind of, you know, card battle together. And so, you know, oftentimes they'd come up with like this new monster idea and they'd bring it to the engaged group of players and be like, hey, here's the guy that we're thinking is going to come out. You know, here are the powers they're going to have. And the players would, you know, either instantly know... Oh, this is going to do X, Y, Z to the meta, or like, this is just going to be hard countered by this other, you know, monster that nobody uses, but they know about, and, you know, is going to make this card basically worthless from the get go. And then, you know, other times you talk to them and be like, you know, what do you guys think we should do? Or how do you think we should change up the meta? And oftentimes the very best monsters that they released came from the players giving these ideas of like how to do the thing. Um, what we should release. And then further, it was even supported within the community because those engaged players, if somebody was complaining that they released this new overpowered monster, the players would kind of hop on that and defend their own ideas and the community like reinforced itself, which I found super interesting. But, you know, do you think anything like this would be applicable within a level design type context? Like if you were talking to players or having them test things or pitch ideas of like, hey, this would be really interesting to see play out, you know, within the context of a level.
1: Yeah, very very funny. Yeah. So basically, we have a game mode in the no man's land, which is the challenge mode where we have the set of six missions that you have to progress through the week and you can get higher, higher levels of stars and accumulate better loot, basically. And for your group of guilds. So it's it's a very uh, engaging mode. The people like it. It's a social part in this. And so that being said, but we're making missions for these mode for the last five years. That was one of the first modes. And um, I, at some point said, wait a minute, we go into the forums, ask the people, what would you like to see as missions in there? And this was exactly as, as Javier there described for me, it was a. Eye-opening moment. It helped me shake loose my set as um, set uh, views of what can be and what can't be in this game mode. I rearranged the objects and the the uh, the, the enemies till the cows come home on this. We have I don't know. Let <laughs> me not lie. We have we have at least two hundred forty missions in the game already. And suddenly, then we put this question to the community, and we we reached the guys in the forums and. That being said, I actually read the forums now and then to get a, get a gorge. And this is a very, very good indicator of how engaged your community is, what they're upset about. And you <laughs> use the insights in your game that you, because they are the guys who go on the internet and engage now extra but so what the missions i got out of this were mind-boggling great you know and it gave me a a new perspective on the game and it gave exactly that the community i I implemented them as good as i can as close to their designs of course some of them were bonkers unplayable (laughs) and totally unbalanced so you have to kind of derive uh, condense it into a playable version but they loved this kind of participation. We had the most beautiful designs and drawings and uh, really invigorated the design of these missions for me as well, as much as it engaged the players. And instead of only running one set, we used the, the second set, and I'm, I'm trying to work on a third set as well, just because this kind of feedback from the people who really love your game is invaluable. And it's this is where I think you can see that you have a life and working microcosm of a game if they start suddenly saying wait a minute if you combine this trade with that trade no one ever designed this kind of interactions but the community finds these interactions because we gave them a rule set and a game world that they can feel i don't know interacting and feel lively in you know i think it's a uh, it's a beautiful um, side effect of working in games and yes i definitely would uh, I absolutely with, with javier there definitely if, if you work as a designer creating content for an ongoing game with a lively community listen to them or try to engage so far i was reluctant to actually go in the forums myself and say listen i'm the level designer what would you like so i always have the the community manager in between so i don't get this um, instant feedback how dare you kill me in that mission sort of but um it is very 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 in um great experience and really that's yeah i I recommend it to anyone
0: love it love it okay i'm going to switch gears just a little bit because i know we're getting towards the end of time here first time user experience do you have any like lessons learned or tips for folks and maybe like how often they should return to adjusting levels and things around the first time user experience like you know for me the, the best thing you can do in a game is get more people to stick around, you know, past day 30. And I think the biggest thing that we can do to tweak that, at least at first, is some of those levels with levers with the early player experiences. You know, they might like play a single level or not even get to that point and they just like turn and they never come back to your game. They never get to experience your game. Um, mm-hmm. So I think some yeah. of those things are super. So, you know, what's your, your take? lessons learned or thoughts around first-time user experience
1: that's a very good point i think it's a it's a bit of a um again there's a trade-off in this um you want the game in classic level design if you if someone buys a game we are used to this experience of hey first i get to walk down the road then i get to pick up my sword then i get to kill a few enemies blah blah you know, this kind of slowly introducing your features and mechanic. In a mobile game, I think if you give players three or four missions that are highly s- simplified and boring, in a way, it is very, very, um, there is a chance that you churn them very quickly, like, oh, no, that's not for me, That's not. that doesn't give me enough um, engagement, in a way. Well, and I don't think we seem that particular in, in, in the, the Walking Dead, we're very careful with how to introduce new mechanics and we didn't see particular churn we had little um, funny moments as in the people don't ex- um, don't n- never use their special abilities because we never really tutorialized them properly so suddenly people <laughs> reach mission 16 17 without never using their special ability and it's just amazes us how they can even pass these missions so <laughs> it is a in mobile, you need to um, slowly, it, you, ha- you have to, you can't overwhelm the play- players because the, the the segregation of the players is so huge. You might have this very, very unexperienced mobile gamer or you have this kind of hardcore gamer. And it's a trade-off between how fast you wanna throw them into the action. You can turn them because it's too difficult. You can turn them because it's too easy. So you have to see what feature set you want to want them to experience um, ultimately and how fast you want them to experience that and that being said i think in hindsight um, it would have probably and we did a few a b tests but we never did a b tests like really very small a b tests as in or is this does it need a text box or is it no text box but I think it definitely would be something to consider if you have a huge feature set how it would feel for a player to be thrown into the action or absolutely guided into the action slowly so if you see a segregation there in your maybe your player base is more hardcore and they can take it maybe your player base is a bit more oh, i don't know what to do oh thank you for showing me the the um glowing arrows yeah i think it, it depends what uh, yeah, where, where, what your player base is, and um, if how how um, sure you are, and how how expensi- uh, expansive, as an expanded your future feature set is, because if yeah. it's
0: very big, you need a. Have you ever tried having? different versions of levels or especially like early levels? Or, you know, is there ever a case where you should do that where like, you know, everyone starts at like the medium version of the level. And if they do X, Y, Z, it seems like they get that. So the next one we're going to give them the hard one. Oh, they got really close to dying. So we're going to give them the easy version of the next level kind of a thing.
1: I mean, that is a bit like an AI approach. Basically yeah data. So, something, something like yeah. that yeah it
0: could be ai it could be rule-based like oh, if yeah, they rule do. Based, that, yeah. i mean but you know yeah. something like that where like there's differing versions so for those hardcore players they're getting faster into the the harder version for the players that yeah. seem like they need you're, you're kind of guiding them a little bit more
1: um not really for missions because i know that is um it's a bit of a you know again it depends on your game if you have missions that um with uh depends what you feel is more difficult you know some some people play very um carefully so if you limit their uh, movement further it doesn't make it more difficult while it should be more difficult to play if you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i'm a bit wary how how you how would you grant gra- grade these <laughs> uh, experiences but um i um I would find this very interesting no i haven't worked with that kind of system. What we found in the no man's land again we we introduced something where the players can skip easy missions for well, if you go further in the challenges, it was too boring for them to play these again and again, so we skip you further into the harder missions earlier so if you play very far this week next week you will be seeing harder content quicker, so that is definitely something you you you, you you need to look at now and then um that people don't have to go through but it's, it's not a dynamic system as you describe and um that would be interesting to see actually how how then then you could really see your player base i guess if you have a set of five difficulties and then you branch out everyone according yeah. to their performance then you will end up with this really really um, detailed map of how experienced or how good or however you wanna call it, your players are, that's actually maybe a nice way of um, of
0: finding (laughs) player types. Yeah, that could be super interesting. And you might even be able to get away, you know, depending on the game, like with like little multipliers where like if it's super easy, it's like, you know, reduce enemy health by 20% and you boost the player damage by a little bit. And If it's really hard, it's like the inverse or something like that. I don't know. Um, people get Yeah, they
1: get a nuke if they are really <laughs> crap at it. So they have this fun, just happy game. And then the yeah. other people have this really intricate experience with tactical combat.
0: Yeah. yeah maybe that really
1: prevents churn in the end it might be onto something there I
0: don't know we'll see we'll, we'll make our Milindari, Milindari game later one one last question before the unofficial one so I love data like I, I love data I think we can learn a lot from it um, but sometimes I think there is an aspect of just like truly observing somebody's workflow or gameplay or life like I was just listening to a book yesterday um, and it was all about P&G, Procter & Gamble. <clears throat> and they'd recently acquired a company, uh, Gillette, I think. Um, and they really wanted to launch a new razor in India. And they said, well, uh, you know, why can't we just observe Indian men here in the U.S. and, and we'll just let me make a razor for them. And the guy was really insistent, like, you know, for our strategy to work, like we need to truly understand our audience And so you need to go spend two weeks in India and, you know, follow some guys around and really understand what is their life like, you know, know them inside and out as much as you can. And on the way home, uh, they sketched out a design and it was really fundamentally different, like in the U S when most men shave, you've got access to a big sink and you've got hot water that's going on and you can easily rinse out your shaver. But in India, a lot of the guys that they were following didn't have that. They had like a single cup of cold water um, that, you know, was very difficult to like clean out the shaver. So they ended up creating this new shaver instead of like the Mach 5 that had five blades that would get all the little hairs and stuff stuck in there. They created like a single razor with something and like within like a week of launch or something, it was like the number one best-selling razor in India and just like dominated the market because it actually addressed like the fundamental need of like when I'm shaving the way that I'm shaving to do that. Um, So kind of with that in mind, you know, data is great. Like at a high level, I can see like, what does the flow look like? Where are people churning and all those things? But you know, have you ever used one of those tools where it like records the player session or like actively like watch the players that either stuck around or churned and just like try to understand it more from like their perspective of like, what is the experience that they're having and how can I make that experience better?
1: Actually, we, we, we did a few. It's, it's a bit like what I said earlier. This is this people in a room. But, um, of course, it, it was very insightful, especially in the early times. And I've seen it not just with Next Games, but a few other companies. It is very, very insightful for um, your first UX designs and for for, for your blocking out of, of your um, the first-time user experience. It's like they don't see that button or this kind of, you know. Um, absolutely, I think it's a very, very um, valuable tool for um, finding out, um, yeah, basically the the kinks, the kinks at an early stage, and um, it uh, anyone who has the money and the time for doing it, I would highly recommend giving at least one, one for a quick rush of, of some user testing so to to making sure you're not really, really or I often um, find it find it highly interesting that the, the psychological differences when you said the cultural differences, you know, mm-hmm. if you were in a global business, and then suddenly you can design your buttons and this color means bad luck in some culture, mm-hmm. uh, not that I know any example there. But th- this is very interesting. And if you're really, really trying to create a game for a mass approach, a mass appeal with the widest audience possible—you have to use all these kind of tools and insights to, um, yeah, how to say, uh, shave, shave it, shave it into a, an appealable, approachable yeah. product.
0: That that cultural thing is very interesting. Um, I heard one of the Wright Games talking about uh, this skin that they were designing one time, and they had a color for it, and I think it was, I think it was red. And then yeah. they went around to different like places in the world to understand what red meant. Um, and in China, it had a really negative connotation and yeah. they switched it to gold and it like really resided with them. I might have these colors switched up or it might be something different. So yeah. don't, oh. don't hold me to that. But anyways, yeah. they, they, they went around and they ended up coming up with this color that resided the most with you know all the different countries and just looked really spot on. And because they spent this extra time, it ended up being like their best selling skin ever like yeah. by a large margin um, because they took the time to address that, which I think a lot of people don't actually have the time to do that. But it was very fascinating to like think through because usually you're just, you know, uh, pick a color. Or you just like, you know, go through things without really thinking about like how could this impact.
1: I, it's absolutely. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating. And, and for, for me as a designer, we particularly coming from graphic design with um, color feel and or um, psychology behind UX designs and stuff like this and um, finding, that, in this global world that we 're living in, that it is um, you're finding common denominators that everyone can agree on it's highly fascinating to to see games that do well all over the world, while some games only do here very well because they have this kind of weird quirk that other people yeah. us cultures don't don 't see. Um, no, it's a very fascinating, and it can—it's a bit anxiety-inducing if you try to design a game for the for the math market. And you're like, oh my god, am I implementing a color that they will hate in China? No,
0: I love it. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta go fast and fix stuff later, but exactly. so. Cool. Well, this has been super great. I do have one last question for you. The unofficial question that I ask everyone because it's the Mastering Retention podcast, of course. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years that can be applied to help people boost their retention rate? The retention? Yeah, retention. player retention. Could be anything. Could be short-term, long-term. You know, basically, uh, how can you uh, keep more players around for longer?
1: But I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for feedback. Any button, any touch on the screen is has to give you a bounce of cloth a poof it's a bit like the in half stone when you touch the empty areas on the on the next to the cards it still gives you a little puff of smoke and a little sound i think or this interactive object on the side put in these details in your game and you you are you definitely retain few more than you if you if the button doesn't bounce when you press it really
0: interesting that's my That yeah, is fascinating. Yeah. I I play around with those sort of things. Like I find it like very interesting too. So uh, yeah.
1: I love it. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm absolutely wrong, and then A/B test <laughs> prove me wrong there. But yeah, I, I'm uh, I think that's the games I stick to. This attention to detail. It shows an attention to detail in the developer and the, and the love for the product that um, translates for me anyway.
0: Yeah. That's great. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, podcast today. I had a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully, we can definitely do something again in the future. Um, but uh, thank you so much for joining. Um, if folks do you have any questions for you, is there a good way to get in contact with
1: you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Connect me any. any, any... Connect me on LinkedIn and I will I'm working on my website. So once this is up, you can find this on LinkedIn as well. And
0: that sounds good. And once your website's up, we'll make sure that we link it to this episode too. So thank you so thank you so much, Daniel, and we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye bye.